Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Heroes, this week I have a pretty special episode for you all, and for me. It's not often I get to interview folks in person, and I think never have I gotten to visit the space where their work gets done. This week, thanks to the generous folks at the School of Visual Arts here in New York and friend of the show, Joe DeSimone, for getting us connected, I got to spend a few hours chatting with the Instruction and Periodicals librarian, David Pemberton, and Circulation Manager Christopher Bussman at the SVA Library West about their tabletop games collection and how games librarianship changes the way we interact with games. Some of you know I was a librarian for a little while, and also that I like games. So the opportunity to hear about the intersection of the two things from super enthusiastic professionals was an absolute dream for me. David and Christopher are so knowledgeable and sweet, and they tolerated me asking all kinds of questions about what they do, how they do it, and what it does to the gaming experience. We talk about what goes into building and maintaining a collection like this, how the games are evaluated, how they're shared, and what that means both for the games themselves and for the players. We recorded on site, so this week sounds a little different than you're used to. You can hear some of the noise in the background even though we're in a closed study room, and I think that that low-key bustle of the space is really part of the charm of libraries like these, where people are actually using things. Folks were just outside our room playing games while we talked, and if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I don't know what to tell you. It's hard to convey the love for play in this space through just audio, so also check out the Modifier Twitter feed, at Modifier Podcast, for some photos and links that Christopher and David shared with me. We had a great time, and I can't wait to share it with you, so let's get to the show! All right. Hey there, heroes. So this week I am on location at the SVA Games Library with uh, two of their librarians uh, to talk about games librarianship and what this is and what they do here. So hi. Hello. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here and, yeah. have, and to have both of you. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves a little bit, sort of what you do here? Um, usually I give designers the option to talk about projects they've worked on. So if you have a secret Powered by the Apocalypse hack you've been working on in your lunch break, <laughs> this is a good time to plug that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm David Pemberton. Uh, I guess my title is Instruction Periodicals Librarian. What I do here, I'm, an, I'm head of instruction, uh, programming magazines, um, and a picture collection. And I have a little bit to do with this uh, new tabletop game collection that we have. And I'm Christopher Busman, and I'm the circulation manager here at the SVA Library, which means my duties include supervising student workers and scheduling them at the, at the main library. I also do interlibrary loan, course reserves, and um, together with David, I do acquisitions for this uh, tabletop game collection that we launched recently, uh, which is what we're here to speak about. Yeah. Um, and I do, I am a lapsed gamer who has returned to the fold, um, and I am definitely spending more of my free time at home on this than I had imagined previously, which is great. Um, and we're really excited to talk about the collection and how we started building it and uh, yeah. go from there. Yeah, me too. So so we're at SVA. That's a, a school of visual arts. So we're an arts college. How did a games library start here? Well, just a point of clarification. Yes. This, this is the West Side 
library. So Library West, it's while it does hold our video game collection and our tabletop game collection, it, it's not known as the games library. Okay. Um, but it is that is the become the core of the collection. Uh, there's a lot of graphic novels. It's mm. really it's a miniature branch. So okay. like about 700 volumes as opposed to 80,000 over at the main library. <laughs> but, you know, so all the video games, the tabletop games, and then our books that describe like the art of uh, the video games. And then we're going to get some art of tabletop yeah. games, books too. We decided to house the collection over here because we have a lounge here and it's a noisier space than a library traditionally is, so it's acceptable for people to take the games and play them. And we can project video games here and you can play the tabletop games in the, in the space, mm-hmm. which is something we wouldn't have been able to do in the main library, but, uh, David is correct that, um, okay. it's not technically the games library, uh, sure. though it sort of, some people do refer to it that way just because it is the, the sort of emphasized, an emphasized yeah. collection. Yeah. Yeah. You, this is the library that has all the cool stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, There's a lot of There's cool lot stuff in the main library too. Yeah. There's like thousands of yeah. graphic novels and manga oh, in the main wow. library. Oh, okay. Uh, and in a really impressive physical picture collection that mm-hmm. David curates. Um, Very cool. The art and design mandate of the library is what drove us to start collecting tabletop games um, because it was a sort of area of interest that we hadn't um, really perceived as being lacking in the collection. That yeah. sort of came together through a conversation that David and I had about a year ago while I think you were looking at a game on Google uh, the, the last Friday. Yeah, That's and I it. just blurted out, like, we should start it. Tabletop, where I probably didn't use that term, but I said we should start a board game collection, and Christopher's eyes lit up, and they haven't ever uh, <laughs> unlit up since. They haven't done uh, since. Um, it's something I thought about uh, many years ago, but um, you know, many years ago I was a paraprofessional at the library, and now at the library, and now full fetch librarian, and. Um, kind of at a managerial level, so I think I was able to convince the powers that be that this is something that we need. Yeah. Um, yeah. And perception of the the hobby has changed again in mm-hmm. the last few years, too. I had thought of, I mean, when David spoke to me, like he said, my eyes lit up. I've been thinking about this, too, on and off for years. Um, but as a circulation manager, the acquisition and collection development aspects of my job are kind of a side thing that I do, but it's not the main focus of my job. So I never felt like it was something I could pitch to our directors. We should collect tabletop games. But knowing that David was interested, of course I got excited because here's someone who can help shepherd this um, through. And um, like David said, he pitched it earlier. Tabletop gaming seems to go in waves of popular acceptance. And right now we're cresting a very high wave of popular acceptance. So getting... uh, Getting it heard and getting motivation behind making this collection reality happened a lot faster than it would have even probably two or three years ago. Oh, cool! So that's so it's definitely the kind of public perception has helped that a lot. It sounds like, and it's very cool. The New Yorker article on Dungeons and Dragons two years ago <laughs> was a was a real selling point to our director. Nice. Um, and of course, then I showed her the follow up article last month or two months ago on Magic: The Gathering. And I was like. <laughs> See, mm. you know? uh, but that actually, because it, I don't think there were any New York articles about Dungeons and Dragons in the eighties or the nineties, or not good ones. <laughs> uh, but that kind of rubber stamp of 
approval from a major uh, publication was really, I mean... Probably fact-checked, but... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but it, like, <laughs> there's something about those, you know, it gives, it lends more credence to, like, a, a larger institution being like, oh, this is something we should legitimately look at. Yeah. It certainly does, and it, it, it helped with overcoming the obstacle of pitching a collection like this to a layperson mm-hmm. who thinks, like, we're going to get Monopoly and yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> and stuff like this, and um, to you know to let them know that this is a avenue for artists to get yeah. work, uh, yeah. designers, illustrators. So um, just from that standpoint, you know, um, just that practical future employment perspective, it makes sense. Yeah. When we looked at the departments that we're supposed to support as a library, we have mm-hmm. interaction design. Cartooning and illustration, yeah. um, and multiple other departments where I'm like, this actually fits really well into what students are learning in these departments. And uh, when we put the document together to pitch the collection, mm-hmm. um, we included examples of how you know modern tabletop games feed into these programs, and how students who attend SVA in these programs could find work in these industries. Uh, and that was you know, a very crucial key to sort of unlocking this collection's potential. And making awesome. some of these games run in a fluid manner is some incredible design problems that, that these are the types of things that are assigned in these departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily tabletop gaming, but it, it certainly has happened. Uh, there's a graduate program called Design for Social Innovation, and they had a semester-long project where they had to design their own socially relevant tabletop game. And mm. uh, they ended up coming to the library, to the Eastside Library, and playing it as part of an event tied into, um, I guess it was a resistance uh, sort of suite of events we had about a year ago. Right. Ooh. It was two years ago. Two years ago. It was after the election. Yeah, we had right a up. series of workshops Oh. formulated to resisting. Yeah. And this was one of them, which was creating um, social justice-oriented board games through this class that David mentioned, and then they were held to library. And when I saw that event, that was the beginning of me really... Because that was about a year before we talked about starting the question. That's what started getting my gears going. I said, mm-hmm. oh, there's a program here that's doing this. And since then, I've met two or three students who are either currently or have made tabletop games as thesis projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have one right now, and he's making a, a, a tabletop game where he's going to design and craft and 3D print his own miniatures. Oh, wow. And so on. So uh, we kind of timed this really well to catch this wave of popularity and hit a wave of students who are currently in the school who are heavily interested in, in the programming and the games themselves. Yeah. So it sounds like this is really helpful for students, for their skill sets, for their employment possibilities. Um, are, are games themselves art now, do you think? I mean, I'd say absolutely. I would argue yes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think we see them as art objects yeah. as well as um, objects that should be played. Um, and so we try to emphasize in our collection development policy that David and I wrote together – we try to emphasize that we're, there's the two things we're most interested in are the design aspects of the game mm-hmm. in terms of how they're designed, how they're engineered, and how they're produced. And then the illustration, we want games that, generally speaking, that we're open, we have, you know, we're open to more than just these p- precise definitions, but we're open, we're really interested in games that are lavishly illustrated mm-hmm. and um, show a real level of craftsmanship and detail. 
um, where the illustrations are gorgeous, the layout is gorgeous, the miniatures are incredibly designed. Anything where we can really point to that, we can point to an illustration student who doesn't necessarily want to work in comics, mm-hmm. doesn't want to work in advertising, mm-hmm. but has either really excellent digital or physical painting skills and doesn't loves fantasy or loves science fiction, doesn't know where to channel it. Look at this. This is something you can work in and get excited about. So those are the primary facets. And that's an art and design school. That makes sense that that's what yeah. we would focus on. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so let's, why don't we talk a little bit more then about how you pick those games? Like what did, what did you start with? Like, well, (laughs) we are still figuring out our collection development policy in the sense of how are we going to choose the games we buy? Why are we choosing them? And do they hit the kind of marks of what we wrote in our collection development policy about what is important for us to buy? I think we looked at a couple of the, Early decisions were based on if we could identify tie-ins to our comics collection. Mm. So, for instance, like Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Card Game. game. Yeah. Um, Where that's, I don't know, so someone can make an immediate connection between comic art and game. Right. Brian Learmelly did the illustrations for the game, too, I believe. Probably. Might have to fact-check that. Yeah. Uh, But... um, like David Sex draws an immediate connection. Scott Pilgrim's popular in the library. The the manga circulates like wildfire, so mm-hmm. we knew that that was there, and it shows, like you said, a discrete connection, an obvious connection, um, was one ang- angle. Um, and I think we query the um, student groups. Yes, there are there are two student game clubs uh, at SVA, um, Cards and Dice, which is primarily a board game club, and then there's the tabletop gaming guild that's primary. The role-playing games. Mm-hmm. So we, I wrote to them and asked them what games they have, what games they're interested in, what are, what are they playing regularly, and why. Yeah. And uh, based on their feedback, we bought um, some games based on their suggestions. Okay. We also went for the obvious choices, like uh, Dungeons & Dragons. We bought the starter set and the three-core rule books because we knew that that would fly off the shelves, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what's happened. Call of Cthulhu, also, we knew there's something that's going to be popular that students were going to be interested in. And some of the board game decisions we made were also just our own personal interest, which is not really how a librarian ought to choose generally, but we felt that for a launch, yeah. we needed games that we were familiar with and were excited about so that we could proselytize for those games um, yeah. and get them up and running quickly. Um, like that last Friday game, we bought it because mm-hmm. we're both interested in the game. We knew we'd want to hold an event with it. And it's a cool variation on uh, Scotland Yard. So it mm-hmm. has an exciting mechanic that people, that we could talk about when we play the game. So those were the initial decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that actually made me think when you chose games that you could, that you were familiar with, uh, Borrowing games from a library is a little bit different than borrowing books. Like, we all kind of know how to operate a book. (laughs) Uh, But checking games out, how do you do anything um, to kind of to to help people learn how to play them, to understand what kind of game they are, like what they're getting themselves into? Like, how do you handle that? Well, I think some of the audience coming to the collection is well-versed. So... um, they either know the game already or they're um, adept at picking it up quickly. As far as the mechanics of, you know, loaning them out or just some of those, mm-hmm. we were worried initially 
and we don't even know. We don't have enough test cases yet to really know if it's justified of obviously losing pieces. And, yeah. But we just sort of decided that we didn't want to be, we wanted to be open. Yeah. And we wanted that whole notion that like a library is very rigid, rigid yeah, yeah. and buttons a top button and just <laughs> worried all the time. We wanted to just be like, okay, you know, yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we made the decision that, I mean, I can't speak in a broad generalization. A lot of libraries either don't circulate their games, they're in library use only, mm-hmm. or they have designated tiers of which games can be borrowed and which games can't. Mm-hmm. And we decided not to do that. Oh. Um, we have decided that every game that we collect from now until we have enough evidence to say that we shouldn't uh, is going to circulate. Okay. Um, the and, big test case will be Twilight Imperium. Yeah, we just, oh my God. Yeah, we just got Twilight Imperium. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, and yeah. that, that and the Dark Souls board game are our two big test pieces because as you are aware from your reaction, you know, there's 500 plus pieces to Twilight Imperium, so... Oh, who gets uh, to sort through when it comes back and make uh, sure all the pieces... Basically, I do. Um, we, we are not doing a strong checking system yet either because mm-hmm. we... Um, since our patrons seem to respect our material, we are going to respect them by allowing the material to be borrowed. So... When we initially launched the collection in January, we had no checks and balances whatsoever with it. That's starting to change. Um, I've printed out um, or taken pictures of how I've prepared the games for circulation, Mm -hmm. which we can talk about more if you're interested in. And then I'm affixing those photos and the instructions into the board boxes so that they have a photo reference and they have a list. Um, But we feel like anyone who's going to borrow these games is going to care about them enough to take care of them. Yeah. Because it's not really a collection for casual... People looking for party games. Yeah. We don't collect party games. Okay. um, In the sense, like, we don't collect code names. Right. um, Or Apple's Apple's Cards (laughs) Against Humanity. Um, All fun games. I'm not slagging those games. They're good games. But that's not what we're collecting. Right. So we're not really concerned. Uh, we're, we feel like people who are going to come to these games, we will attract casual people through our programming and through the visual appeal of the display. But once people get into these games, I don't feel like there's that sort of casualness of taking care of the item, I think will be apparent to the patron. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. Um, yes, it's possible that someone will steal the Dark Souls minis when the game goes out of print. I mean, that's something we might, a bridge we might have to cross. Yeah. It's possible we will lose tokens. For Twilight Imperium, Fantasy Flight sometimes can be good about replacing those things and sometimes yeah. not. Um, it's different for institutions than it is for the average gamer, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, we can right. potentially redress issues like that. Um, but we're just going to see how that goes and collect a year or two's worth of data and then decide if we want to diff- structure it differently. Um, but for now, it's all available to borrow. And, I mean, a lot of them are books because we collect role-playing games and most of those are in book format. Yeah. Um, I do have to take care with, like, the D&D starter set, the character sheets. I have, you know, the PDFs from my computer, and I have to print them back out every time the game comes back. Yeah. Um, but I just, there's a note in those games, you know, tell Christopher the game's back, and then I come over here, I check it on my lunch break, and then it goes back out. Nice. Yeah. That's a good system. Uh <laughs> So, so I guess there, yeah, there may not be a lot of data to go on to answer this, but are you finding that more people check the games out and take them away from the library, or stay and play, like just check them, use them here? Anecdotally, so far, it seems like they're taking them home. Okay. Yeah, again, it's anecdotal. We're not here. Yeah. Every, we're not here every day, mm-hmm. so we don't see the day to day usage. 
Right. Um, but I've just seen some people take a game off the shelf and set it up and play. The Scott Pilgrim one, I've seen that happen a few times because it's a two-player card game. It's quick mm-hmm. to set up, quick to play. Um, but most of the games do leave the cool. library. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I was curious. I think somebody was playing when we came in. Like, it looked like the game yeah. was out and happening. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. There was a group here last night uh, playing D&D. Like, uh... Club. Yeah, the club, the Tabletop Gamers Guild, did their first D&D night here yeah. last night. Yeah. Cool. Um, and they they were using some of the materials that we had provided, and I, you know, I, we stay in touch with the leaders of those clubs and try to help support their programming. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so the collection itself, I I, I saw when we came in, and it's you know it's it's a good size. Um, but is what do you do for like? Cataloging these games, do you do you mark them as like, oh, this is a this is a deck building game, this is a worker placement uh, game? Like, how how does that come into it, or does it? No. Yes and no. <laughs> well, yes and no. Not on the on the cataloging. David yeah. could probably speak okay. better to the cataloging. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Still not my department, but that's the uh, <laughs> so technical services. Our cataloging department catalogs mm-hmm. the games, and there are records. So like. Any book that's cataloged in a library, mm-hmm. normally uh, the cataloger finds that record and downloads it. Yeah. We don't. We don't. Librarians share as a nature. You know, that's mm-hmm. just how we do. <laughs> so, for most of these games, and I know there's probably been a couple exceptions. Yeah. There's been existing records for them. So, you know, I could look up maybe subject headings right now. The subject headings, yeah. The, yeah. I, I've, I've looked at a few recently. It'll just say, like, like Arkham Horror would be board game horror, tabletop game, Call of Cthulhu, role play, like that. Okay. It'll the, have the, like, the uh, people that created it. It'll have the people who created it, the, the publisher, companies. the years, the edition. It has all that stuff. Um, yeah. However, because most of these records... I mean, most of these records are created by either library, like librarian catalogers who may not be familiar with the nuances of tabletop games and or are just, you know, the records can be a bit of a mishmash of information. Like if, if a game is a living card game, which we don't collect because that would yeah. be a major theft. Oh there would definitely be theft. Yeah, yeah. And an impossibility to... to Let's anyway. That's a tangent, but it's not something we collect right now for I think pretty clear reasons. Mm -hmm. If anyone's familiar with living card games, who's listening, and I'm sure you are if you're listening. But what I was going to say is, we so on the cataloging level, the idea is to get the information into the record that lets someone go into our catalog and find the specific item. Those are what those subject headings do, like board game horror, okay. tabletop game horror, Call of Cthulhu variant. That's, that gets someone who types Call of Cthulhu into our catalog. They'll find the role-playing games. They'll also find Arkham Horror. Mm-hmm. They'll also find Delta Green, Harlem Unbound. They will find anything related in the sort of branching tree of interconnected Lovecraft-related games. But in terms of the specific designations of how a game works, we that isn't done in our catalog. Mm-hmm. It's done in our library guide, oh, which cool. is we make a library guide for every subcategory of our of our greater library collection. So there's one for advertising. There is one for photo collection. There is one for comics. Now, the comics one is amazing. Anyone who's listening who likes comics, I know there's a lot of crossover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SP Library's com- comics collection is really impressive. And that I used Eric's comics library guide as my sort of template to make a tabletop game guide. Um, and that's where I get into those kind of specifics. I have them broken down by board game, role-playing game, card and dice game, miniature game, and then and, and go into the sort of variants of each when I talk about 
the games, and then I directly link to the games in our collection. I have our events page in there. Um, I even have a poll for what kind of events uh, students want to have at the library. That's cool. Uh, And so those two things kind of work together, the catalog to find the specific item and then the library guide to sort of teach people who are interested about tabletop games more about the hobby as a culture and as a community. Um, there, there is certainly information in the actual cataloging records. I'm just looking at one for photosynthesis, the mm-hmm. board game right now. It has a physical description including all the um, all the pieces. All the pieces. Oh wow! Uh, the series. So it's the tabletop games collection. Uh, subject terms: board games, photosynthesis games. Yeah, I know that's a subject. An abstract. Um, you know, players oh, wow. use light points to take their trees through their life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not the records are you know, and then it has the authors uh, and oh, nice. the uh, publisher. So by so has listed the game designers listed as game designer, the illustrators listed as illustrator, and then the publisher. So it's you know, this is this is good metadata. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just good. it's not going to use uh, the specific sort of. Cultural yeah. language of tabletop games may not be in the record. I didn't okay. want to miss for like the, yeah, like deck building yeah. is not going to be in there. In the re- yeah, it's yeah. not going to be in the record or um, like could be in the keyword abstract or something like yeah. this. Mm-hmm. So and that would still might come up in a search. Yeah. So when we create our own records, mm-hmm. uh, which David and I don't create, uh, our cataloging team creates. Yeah. Uh, if we get a game that's brand new. Or we get a game that is incredibly niche. <laughs> uh, there may not be a pre-existing record, and then one has to be created. And then we have more input in the language that goes into the cataloging record because our catalogers will ask us. That's nice. Um, and because for, for most of them, this is still a very new endeavor for them, too. And creating a record for a tabletop game is incredibly time-consuming because of the component listing and the uh, creating the abstract and all the other metadata. Um, but then we do have input into the subject headings and how we want... Um, eventually we want to go through the records and like David said earlier, insert alternate rules and alternate languages for people so they can click on the link in the catalog and get the instructions in Korean or they can get them in German and that'll be in our lib lib guide too. So there are ways we can make those records even more accessible, but that's a project we can't do in our day to day semesterly lives as librarians. It's probably a summer project down the road. When we have shown concrete success with the collection, we will have more opportunity to make these kind of make the records more accessible and build on because yeah. um, well, this is still a, um, there are a lot of libraries that collect tabletop games mm-hmm. but there are a lot recently so it's still this very new especially in academia it's a very new thing that um, yeah. in some ways we're even a little behind on um, but we because I, as I've learned there's lots of, a lot of other libraries kind of in the last 10 years have awakened to this as a collection yeah. and it really was not being collected before anywhere if it was it was incredibly haphazard um, and so there is a movement now to sort of codify and make generalize standardize the information and I think that's something we will eventually be uh, taking part in too that's very cool mm-hmm. I was going to say you were mentioning anecdotally the size of the collection um, oh, what would you say about a third of it's out or? I think almost half yeah oh yeah that's right yeah. so we built a, this collection grew quickly and once we once we got permission and we bought the initial round of games the feedback from our peers as well as, well as from our patrons was positive quickly mm-hmm. and we were able to further grow the collection 
because it showed it, it showed promising results right away, yeah. and we've been able to secure donations to also grow the collection more quickly than we could have um, just out of our own resources. Mm-hmm. And like David said, yeah, but I think almost half, I would say like forty percent or more, is, is currently checked out, um, which cool. to me is just makes my makes me so happy because that is a pretty pretty quick achievement. Because there, we haven't even really, really advertised this collection yet. It kind of is. I think a, a big take right now would be from uh, now that it's the proper semester. Uh, myself and specifically two other librarians have been teaching a lot of information literacy or just library uh, introduction and instruction classes. Uh, part of that's an overview of collections. So you know, we all hit on you know this sort of pops out when you say, oh, and we have tabletop games, like, you know, and it's in our West Side Library, which also has a gaming room and, <laughs> and a VR game collection and a VR Oculus. And, and like, you know, people's so, eyes bug out. Yeah, the surprise and excitement is the response. Yeah. It's the coolest yeah. library anyone's ever heard of. Right. It's, it's so it's, good. And it's, it's exciting. And so that, like David said, they've been really pushing it in their instruction classes. And yeah. um, the thing, too, is that you look at the display and it's just visually it just pops. Mm-hmm. It is so beautiful to look at. And we made a real point this year in orientation in the first week of the semester. I three table display of all the games. I unboxed them, opened the books up, I um dice everywhere and just, just like really just to show the how magnetically visual the tabletop games are, which is something that everyone sort of kind of knows that they're illustrated and knows, but they don't really quite recognize the sort of the value of them as an art object yeah. and just how visually appealing they are. And when you walk in and see them, it just is like, wow, this is just amazing to look at. Even if you have zero interest in them, people who, you know, never played a tabletop game beyond Parcheesi come in and look at the display and are just like, what is all this? Yeah. You know, this is so... Like, uh, yeah, um, and particularly the ones that tie into the comic collection, like the Scott Pilgrim and we have the Mouse Guard role-playing game. Uh, and once those, anyone who's read those comics immediately wants to know what these are. And yeah. uh, that has definitely drawn interest. Excellent. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, kind of coming right off that, what having games in a library kind of does for the perception of games and gaming? I think a, it's, it's still, and it's, you know, it's kind of sad that we have still have to say it like this. I think it legitimizes games and gaming mm. in a way that there's still stigma around the industry and the hobby as being very niche and, um, not art and yeah. not, um, and it's disposable. Um, that's, mm. And so it's kind of, I feel like tabletop games are going through what comics went through in the 90s, where academia sort of realized that these were this was not disposable pop culture, yeah. and that this was valuable art that needed to be investigated, and needed to be collected, and needed to help people access, I mean, games are incredibly expensive, yeah. and we can provide someone a chance to play Twilight Imperium for free. They don't have to pay $125 to buy the game, mm-hmm. never learn it because it's so complicated, and then it ends up in a goodwill somewhere like with half its pieces missing. That's not going to be the life cycle of our copy of the game. Yeah. And I think that that is part of it, too. I think it's providing access to something that's expensive, mm-hmm. and it is legitimizing those things as valuable beyond their initial playability. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I would just add as a caveat, though, that uh, 
a large sector of the audience didn't need convincing that it was it's true. Yep. But I think, you know, it certainly brought in people. Yeah. And I think it continu- it will continue to do so. It's just, um, but the, you know, this is SVA. So like, <laughs> I mean, everyone here that is a student or teaches here or most of the administration is interested in art and, yeah. you know, some of them, there might be a tangent that looks down their nose, you know, at video games, tabletop games, but, uh, it's pretty I rare. think more and more they're realizing like just from a capitalistic standpoint, this, I mean, and it's yeah. true. It's like, what is the video game industry? is like bigger than the movie industry, yeah. right? I mean, and, tabletop games is 150, was $150 million industry two years ago. It's a lot. Like, it's funny to, I, I, I noticed just in like, even in Target, like the, the, the breadth of what they collect now is in the last couple of years expanded a lot. Like, yeah. um, Barnes and Noble, I noticed that too. Yeah. yeah. Not so, there three or four years ago. And oh, suddenly yeah. they're collecting a wide range of tabletop games. So I think like what David says is true. At SVA, we are very privileged to have a student body and faculty who are going to be predisposed to be interested in our collection. Right. Um, it's not like a potentially a public library where you really have to work to generate interest mm-hmm. in certain public libraries. I kind of don't want to speak for all of them. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we have a built-in – it's like, you know, we have a built-in fan base already. But it still took – this long for us to launch a collection. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, once we decided to do it, it happened quickly, but it, you know, it's something that could have happened years earlier. Um, and part of that was the, the sort of sense that, of misunderstanding of what the industry is, what the hobby is, and why we should be collecting it, I think, you know. And space. Space, too, is a big issue. Yeah. Space for libraries is always a problem. Mm-hmm. So, we, you know, there's this annual activity called weeding that patrons don't like to you know the public thinks oh no the library saves everything like no we don't we can't no no we don't we have to get rid of stuff all the time you know we're not an archive yeah and we uh games are big right like twilight imperium is huge massive takes up an entire shelf just every game we buy that's a giant board game we have to justify spatially um and then with the price our budget is modest we have to justify it financially. Yeah. Um, we have received donations from designers and publishers, and if you're listening, we would love more. Uh, but we also have to be judicious in that. We can't just accept everything, potentially, that we're given mm-hmm. um, if it doesn't fit our criteria for what we're collecting. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into the, those are the major factors. And like David said, eventually, you know, five, six years from now, we're going to have to weed this collection in, too. Yeah. Is there a new edition of a game? Did this game never circulate, and why? Uh, is this it's real? This is incredibly damaged. Do we replace it? Those questions are going to come up actually pretty quickly because the wear and tear on these games is going to be high. Uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into the decision making about what we get and why, and how long we're going to hold on to it. And like David said, we're not an archive, so you know if there's a fourth edition or something comes out, and then a fifth edition and a sixth edition, our current. Policy is we only collect the current edition of the game so that it's playable for our patrons and we are, are what we have is in sync with the ability to play. If there's a sixth edition of D&D, which it feels like it's coming because they keep watching all these surveys, <laughs> yeah. we would have to make a decision about what to do with the fifth edition stuff because we're not necessarily going to keep it. Yeah. Because playability is very important to us because we are here to support the students and to especially support those student clubs. And 
because of space issues, we cannot just have everything. Yeah. Well, then let's, I want to talk about that a little bit. The fact that you are not an archive and that weeding terrifies the masses. Oh, um, we don't like it. Either. I mean, I don't like it. Do you like to weed? Yeah. Well, it's probably uh, not, it's not I enjoyable. Joke, but that's not like a... It's just, it doesn't it's, matter. It's not a positive <laughs> trait for a librarian. I, mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a hoarder, but... Um, Oh, yes. It's not necessarily an admirable trait for a librarian. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess um, just for folks who don't know the difference, then I, um, what is, what's the difference between then a library like this and an archive, and why? I don't know. There's different way, like, ways to sort of describe. I feel like an archive sort of fits in between a museum and a library. Hmm. So an archive... First of all, it is arranged differently. Like, for instance, here at SVA, we have a design and illustration archive. So it was started by original donation from Milton Glaser. So, and there's like 20-some illustrators and designers that are very famous and and associated with SVA. We have their collections. So everything is uh, arranged around that artist Mm -hmm. and... There are things in it that there's like ephemera and there's products that they've created, but there's also unpublished material in it. Mm-hmm. So, Original work. Oh, so let's cool. say there could be a prototype mm-hmm. of like so of let's say they made an album cover, something like that. So we'd they'd have the album cover. Mm-hmm. They'd also have the prototype of the album cover. They might even have a draft of the album cover. Oh, so cool. archives, uh, they have unpublished materials. Libraries have published materials not that archives don't also have published materials but um and that you know and it's their mission is to preserve and make available um these things for for the long haul now certainly in the library there are things that we want to try to keep for as long as we can uh we're not going to weed those things these core things and we'll replace them where we can but it's just it's uh it's a different situation yeah our goal is to circulate the material. We want the material in the patron's hands. We want them using it, playing it. Um, And if over the course of two years and 35 uh, checkouts, a board game falls apart, then it's lived its life cycle for us because it has served the purpose for which we purchase it, which is to get it viewed, used, played. Um, And if it's not preserved, that's not necessarily a strong issue for us because preservation is secondary to usage. And so in that sense too, like I was saying, because of the also the space, like the archive is designed to preserve. It's like perfectly maintain these items and you need an appointment to see them. You have to wear gloves and not with our stuff, you know, potentially like not with our games. Um, And like, that's the thing too. So, I mean, we, we don't have the budget for it. And even if we did, I probably wouldn't go out and buy the 1978 basic D&D set because we, what would we do with it? We would lock it up in a cabinet and no one would ever get to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't really serve our collection at this time. Um, You know, maybe way into the future, that could be different, but our goal now is to have a wide breadth and selection of a variety of games that are playable and supported. And, and we're not even at, we're not, as far as there's libraries that are more of a, like at a research level mm-hmm. than we are. Think of like, I don't know, University of Texas. Um, they have, they have a video game archive. Mm-hmm. So they 
try and Ooh, that's tough. Yeah. They try and collect, you know, physical and everything, physical yeah. and they have all kinds of preservation issues, porting digital yeah. copies. But I, I haven't visited myself, but I know, you know. So we're not, we're not trying to be this exhaustive. Yeah, uh, we can't be. Right, can't be. we're just not. We're smaller. Yeah, um, Texas is a hotbed for that because the University of North Texas has one of the largest tabletop game collections in the country, and theirs now circulates too. But it's because they have gotten a massive materials budget to support that, and we just don't have that. Well, Texas is a very big state. So. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. I. It sounds like it's a lot of school libraries and university libraries that are, are kind of tackling these things, um, like having games in the collection and, and or, or archive. Is this something that you think public libraries are going to get in on, or have they? Some have. Okay. Um, there was a really good article on uh, Gizmodo years ago mm. called Why Why Public Libraries Don't Collect Games, Tabletop Games specifically. Okay. I think it was mostly, mostly focusing on role-playing games, and I don't remember the exact title, but it was something to that effect. Yeah. And it talked about the sort of haphazard way in which uh, games were collected by public libraries in the 80s, 90s, into the early 2000s, where, you, where it just didn't foster completeness and it didn't foster play. Because you'd go in and they'd have the player's handbook from third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, but they would have the Dungeon Master's Guide from fourth edition, and then they'd have board games that were incomplete, and they just... And, you know, some of that is down to public libraries' budgets, their missions, their whether or not they take donations. Um, more and more libraries on all levels are collecting this material. And I know that New York Public has a pretty decent collection of games, but they're scattered throughout the system. Same with Brooklyn and Queens, too. And I can't say much more than that without doing a lot of research. This industry, as it's growing and getting more popular, is going to get collected on all levels, um, for sure. Um, but, again, a public library's mission is so different from ours or from a, or from a larger university, because we are acquiring it for play, but we're also acquiring it for study. And... Yeah, I'm running out of thoughts on that. That's, that's a wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm more likely to find Monopoly than at my public library, probably. Than- that's what I sort of think of when I, yeah. you know, just, um, you know, it's an after-school place to go. Yeah. So you just have a variety of yeah. things. I mean, that's, that's probably changing. You can probably get pandemic. But like, <laughs> probably, yeah. We have that too, of course. But, like, it's... Uh, it is changing, but I don't know what the... I can't speak to the pace of change or how thorough that's yeah. going to be. Pandemic, how do you deal with legacy games, or do you? We, at the moment, we do not collect them. Uh, <laughs> are you even familiar with legacy games? Have we talked about that? Oh, my gosh. Please school me. <laughs> do you want to, you want, why don't you, do you want to, sure. you, you tell me about legacy games, and then I'll like, so talk know, about why or why not. So I know for sure, um, <laughs> keep dimming away what some of your card games are as well. Um, so I know Pandemic has a legacy version, and then, um, what's the, I just blanked on, the World Conquest. Is Seafall? Is that the game? Oh, no. The, um, what's the one where you're fighting for territory on... Risk? Thank you. Yes. So, like, <laughs> Risk. I can't think of that out. I'm very smart. Uh, Risk and Pandemic both definitely have legacy versions, and I think other games are getting in on it, too, where uh, the things that happen in your game, they affect the board, or you have, um, so, like, a... Uh, place in uh, a city in pandemic gets overrun by whatever the virus is and it's wiped out. You put a sticker over it and it's gone the next time you play the game. Um, Permanently. 
Yeah. yeah, it's like so. That's there. There's your answer. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. So like, or or they'll have. Um, you can only get like twelve plays out of it because each time you open up a new packages, uh, a new package of like directives or something, and then everything you do affects the board, and you take things out of the game or you put things on the game, and. It's, yeah, it's, no, they need to start making that stuff magnetic. Quick. Yeah, that's just that's just a money grab. That's yeah. what it sounds like to me. I mean, it's it's, a, it's interesting it's, from a narrative perspective. I think mm-hmm. I think legacy games are interesting narratively. If you're willing to invest the money, knowing the game is only going to get a few plays, and when you're done with it, it's over. Yeah, uh, it does seem somewhat wasteful. So if there were ever like a, a really prestigious gaming guild or something like that, and then. You know, they did these legacy games, and their board got changed in certain ways that maybe other people would be interested in, both yeah. now and, and in the future. That could be something that could go into a, a game archive. Yeah, like a true archive. <laughs> Not ours, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think we can't collect it because of the permanence issue. Yeah. Um, in the same way that we can't collect a living card game, where you have to constantly buy boosters of cards oh, okay. to improve your deck. So, um, like, uh, it's like Magic the Gathering. Yeah. We can, like, the Scott Pilgrim games are complete card games, so every card you need is in there. Mm-hmm. Or if you do buy, if there are expansions, they're still complete. It's a set of um, you're never hunting for that special $300 yeah. magical unicorn card. <laughs> because if we had that, people would steal them. And then you can't, with living card games, you just can't assure your patrons that they can really play the game completely yeah. the way they expect to. And with the legacy games, again, like that would be fine if, if we had like 10 patrons period, but, and we, and they were the only ones who borrowed the games and then we were just happy with the life cycle, but we can't really, yeah. this wants to be, it wants to be, I have to like be even careful with a game like dark souls or scythe because it comes with a form you're supposed to fill out. And I have a very explicitly on there photocopy only. Yeah. And I have a PDF of it because <laughs> if someone actually filled that in and I don't have copies of it, can't use it again. Yeah. So that usability is is, is key. I mean, like I narratively, I find legacy games interesting and would love mm-hmm. to play one myself. Doesn't work for the collection. Yeah. Yeah, they're fascinating. Yeah. I just I don't know about buying a game knowing it's going to turn into trash. <laughs> exactly, especially when it's That's a lot of plastic. Yeah. What else is there? Anything else we should know about this library Pro- or collecting games? Yeah. Talk about programming. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, that's a big part of life. Sure, got one. We got the first. Yeah, actually, so up. yeah, we do. Um, so we, one of the aspects that really sold launching this uh, collection to our directors was that we were going to do substantial programming behind the the collection, mm-hmm. which we do with a, a lot of our collections. Um, mm-hmm. We do programming behind them. Like David had an event here last night. Was it? Uh, you want to talk about your event? Real quick? Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, yesterday was National Coming Out Day, so we had a, a poetry reading. We had four um, queer poets come in, and we just had a nice reading here in this space. And yeah, yeah. So, but we have a you know we have artist talks. We have yeah we yeah we have a lot of programming. Uh, so like our common collection of like the events we have, are we'll have writers and artists come in and give talks or lead workshops. Um, and we you know, we've had poetry readings, we've had music events. Um, so with gaming, there's there's kind of a multi prong approach to programming. One is to support the the clubs. Mm-hmm. So there, like I said earlier, there are two gaming clubs, and they run their own events and they're self run. We we don't supervise them or what we do is support them but once a semester so this semester 
I'll pick one of the clubs and I will do a co-sponsored event. And then next semester, the other club and us will do a co-sponsored event. Just a little something a little bit bigger that is more open and that we directly support uh, with our material and potentially some funding um, to show the clubs and the people in the clubs that this collection is meant for them and is to support what they're doing. Um, and then sometimes these clubs end up when uh, a life cycle of a game is complete for them, they donate them to us or they help us. We exchange contact information with people in the industry that we've all met. We all work together and sort of network to bolster the collection and then to bolster the clubs. So that's a very reciprocal relationship we want to build. Uh, and then the uh, I'm just going to keep I'm all yeah, fired up about yeah. the events. <laughs> we got something coming yes, up. we have something. So we have something coming up, which those, for those of you who are listening who are not part of the SVA community, this event is not open to the public. Mm-hmm. It's only open to the SVA community. However, we may have events open to the public down the road because mm-hmm. um, some are and some aren't. It really depends on the size and scale of what we're doing. Uh, but uh, Lucian Khan, uh, who is the designer of a role-playing game called Dead Friend, uh, is coming on the 28th of October Monday. <laughs> I got to check that date. I think that's right. Um, I don't have the flyer in front of me. I should have had it in front of me. But he's coming to uh, talk and present the game. And so the talk is open to the SVA community. He's going to come talk for about 15, 20 minutes about how... Sorry, the 29th. It's the 29th, excuse me. Yeah, that's the 29th. 630, 6.30. Cool. Uh, he's going to talk for 15, 20 minutes about how he created the game. Mm-hmm. So how we, everything from how we initially got the idea and envisioned the game through how it was designed uh, and how it was published. And then um, we have an RSVP list. Uh, he's willing to run the game for up to 12 people. Uh, and uh, I think so, that's one of the most exciting things that we might bring event, uh, programming-wise is to have creators of games actually run a session, yeah. which we're thinking of. How awesome was that? Like, um, yeah. So we're, I'm really trying to bolster the contact network that um, David and I have either created by meeting designers um, or meeting people like Joe, who set us up with you, Joe DeSimone, uh, who knows a lot of people in the industry. And then yep. we've uh, Dennis Detweller, the creator of Delta Greens, an SVA alum. Um, there's a lot of it's, it's, it's coming out of the woodwork from learning about uh, people who graduated from SVA who ended up in the industry that we yeah. had no idea about. Uh, and so getting people excited about what we're doing here so that they want to come here and present their games. Um, and I, uh, so that, that's the most current one, uh, in dead friend. And so 12 people will get to play the game after he presents it. Um, and we have uh, another one coming, uh, in the end of November that, uh, it's going to be, uh, Oscar Rios, who is the designer of, um, a calcium licensed call of Cthulhu supplement called Cthulhu Invictus. Uh, for Green Goblin Press, which is Call of Cthulhu in Ancient Rome. Uh, that should be November 30th, though I need to fully com- uh, confirm that with him. So, To be confirmed. Yeah. Um, but that would be a similar setup. He would come in, talk about working on a licensed game and how they did that, and then run the game for however many people he says he can run it for. Nice. Um, and then we also want to, the third and final event type of thing we want to do is have actual physical hands-on arts and crafts related uh, events like miniature painting, Ooh, yeah. dice making, um, workshops on uh, map making, anything related to the actual mm-hmm. tangible materials is something that I'm really excited about getting off the ground. Um, and we'll see if that happens this academic year. I'm hoping to get one of those going for next semester. Uh, 
mini painting seems to be the one that has the most excitement behind it and is the easiest to set up. Sure. Uh, but I'd like to do all of those things. Um, and uh, we shall see. But yeah, building up a strong, you know, two or three events per semester programming schedule is something that I'm really passionate about um, in support of this collection. Cool. Yeah. Then that kind of actually takes us nicely into where can folks find out more about this online and about your programming and so library.sva.edu there's an events button there or on the banner and uh, that would have calendar of events um, yeah and the, the events calendar will specify if a um, event is SVA community only or open to the public so do pay attention to that if you um, are looking at the events and you're not a, a member of the SVA community um, and like I said we do hope to have um, public events uh, also if you click on the collections tab on the library's page it will take you to a list of our collections and the corresponding library guide. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the Tabletop Games Collection button and click it, it'll take you to the library guide, which is that what I was talking about earlier, is what we worked up to support the collection. It'll tell you what games we have, nice. what events we're having, um, information about the different types of games and how they work. And um, that's still a work in progress, but I'm working on it all the time. It's always changing. So that is there, too. And then you can also look at all our other amazing collections uh, at the library because each one has its own supported library guide and uh, associated librarian like David. Nice. Thanks. You could, you could check Thank back you. in with us down Thanks the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I'd, I'd love to hear more about like what you find out. <laughs> yeah, I think in the next two years cool. we're gonna, we'll have an appreciable set of data um, to tell us how successful this has been and what changes we need to make and what where to take the... Mm-hmm collection you know, our hope is to really make it a preeminent well-supported well-collected well-used collection that um awesome thank cool. you well, thank you so much it was a pleasure huge thanks again to david and christopher for being on the show and for having me out at the library if you're in new york keep an eye out for public events there the links for that schedule and the library guide that we talked about and all of that will be in the notes on our website that's all for this week heroes Follow Modifier on Twitter at Modifier Podcast, or send us questions, comments, and suggestions through email at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is part of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts, including shows like this one. The most fun way to learn about new games is to listen to them get played. Every week on OneShot, James D'Amato brings you actual play recordings with a talented cast of improvisers, game designers, and other notable nerds. Each month features a new group trying a new system, exploring a wide variety of genres. The stories are self-contained, so you can jump in anywhere, and it's a great way to discover new games. Discover the magic of RPGs with OneShot on your favorite podcast app. To find out more about this and other shows on the network, visit OneShotPodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at CatGreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.